Is Jesus really going to return? This may be the hardest part of our faith to actually buy into, if you think about it. I mean, we can believe that he really died. We can believe even that he rose from the dead. Like We can picture these events in our minds. We can see them happening. Maybe some of us have even seen movies of them happening, so we can see it. It still takes faith to believe, of course. But there's historical evidence backing up our faith. But believing that he's coming back to earth eventually, that's harder to imagine. We don't have a frame of reference for that. We have no particular evidence that he will return besides his word on it. So how should we think and, and how should we, what should we, what should we believe about the return of Christ? How important is it really? Why should we hold fast to a belief that Jesus is really coming again? The portion of God's word that we'll be looking at today, I believe, speaks to these matters. And I believe that it means to reassure us of Christ's return as something that we should or even need to cling to in our, in our times, in our days. Because without it, our faith really is meaningless regarding the future. But if it is true, it should cast a shadow, a, a good shadow over everything happening now. So please open up to Revelation 19 in a Bible with me. Revelation 19. Lately, Revelation's been getting exciting. Not that it wasn't exciting before, but we're reaching a culmination and a climax of all of history. As evil is banished, heaven rejoices, and Christ returns as king. And there may be no more glorious description of our coming king than in, in Scripture than right here, what we'll read today. Revelation talks a lot about future things, including Jesus' return to earth. In both the first and last chapters, Jesus is said to be coming soon. But chapter 19 is one of the only places to describe his return to earth, what it'll be like. It's, goal, it's good to remember that the actual title of this whole book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Its goal is to reveal or unveil Jesus to us, the readers or hearers of the book, to show us Jesus as the risen, reigning, and returning Lamb and King. It's also showing us the ultimate outcome of his gospel, the outcome of the good news about Jesus, the long-term effects this will have on the world, the redemption of creation, the salvation of the nations, the consequences of sin, the judgment of evil, and the eternal blessedness of the redeemed. All of these are happening or will happen because Jesus died and rose again, because he is on the throne, and because one day he is coming back to reclaim the earth. All that said, if, if this book is going to reveal Christ to us, then we better see who he really is. Get a good picture of him, because he may just be different than most of us would imagine him to be. We'll start today in verse 11. 
After Babylon's destruction and heaven's corresponding celebration, the mood is still triumphant here, although there's still so, there's some seriously somber undertones, as we'll see. One scholar calls the rest of chapter 19 simultaneously magnificent and terrible. Magnificent and terrible. Over the first ten verses of the chapter, John didn't actually see much, but he heard heaven's praise. He heard one thing after another, but now he looks up and he sees a spectacular sight, and then he invites us to see it with him. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The most common command in Revelation is to behold, to look, to, to see this. Even if you can't see it with your eyes, see it in your mind's eye. Daryl Johnson explains that in Revelation, we are not commanded to go or to be or to witness or to love or even to overcome. We are commanded to look. The implication being that if we look, if we see what John sees, we will go and be and witness and love and overcome. So, what are we supposed to see? It says, behold, a white horse. Though the focus isn't on the horse. The focus is on the rider of the horse. Behold, a white horse. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it. It's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Do you get the picture? This is Jesus riding forth to judge the world and wage war on evil and injustice. And what we should see and apply from this and the verses that follow is to behold Jesus' coming glorious return from heaven. That's the overarching thing here. Behold Jesus' coming glorious return from heaven. John has seen heaven opened three prior times in Revelation, each at critical junctures of the book. Here he sees it again. Then I saw heaven opened. So he is coming from heaven to earth. That means he's not just calling his people off of the earth. No, he is coming to renew this world. But unlike the first time he left heaven for earth, he won't be coming as a baby this time. So, what's the significance of the white horse? Well, the horse was a symbol for war. In John's day, when a king or an emperor rode a horse, they were usually riding to war. Think of Zechariah's prophecy, which Jesus fulfilled, of Israel's king coming to them riding on a donkey. And it says, speaking peace to the nations, ending warfare. Donkeys could be ridden to make peace, not so much to make war. And that is indeed what Jesus is up to here in Revelation 19. The one sitting on the horse is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. We're going to come back to Jesus' actions in a bit, but let's first focus on Jesus' appearance, all right? It's, it's glorious. There's a, 
a huge emphasis in this passage on names of Christ. We're going to see this as we go forward. John really wants to communicate Christ's identity to us, who this glorious one is. And the first names given are faithful and true. Faithful and true. He embodies, personifies, even defines these attributes. Jesus is faithful. That means he is the model of faithfulness, of of eschewing sin. He perfectly remained faithful to his Father in a hostile world, and he'll always do what he says he will do. Jesus is faithful, and Jesus is true. He speaks truth. He's true to his calling and purposes. He's never inconsistent or false. He never lies. He's reliable, genuine. You could say he's the real thing. And and what this all means, that he's faithful and true, it means that you and I can trust him. We can trust him in a world where we don't know who to trust. We don't know whose word to believe. We don't know which leaders we have in our lives are going to be remain uncorrupted. Even in the church. We don't know which experts out there know best on any host of different topics. We don't know which media outlets are stretching the truth or lying to us. In a, in a life that we ourselves fail all the time to live up even to our own standards, we can know that Jesus is and always eternally is faithful and true. So that's who's coming back here. Now look at what he looks like. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Jesus was seen having fiery eyes back in chapter 1 as well. Fire illuminates, penetrates, consumes, and purifies, and Jesus does all the above. He exposes evil, he sees all our secrets, He will consume his enemies and he will purify his own. And so any or all of this could be communicated by his eyes are like a flame of fire. Then look what's on top of his head. It says, on his head are many diadems or many crowns. Last week, we saw heaven praising, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And now we see Jesus wearing the crowns. We'll come back to this image as well. For now, just know that Jesus is kingly, majestic, royal. Like This is far more than Aragorn returning to Gondor, the truest return of the king. The last phrase there in verse 12, though, might sound confusing to you, where it says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Why would Jesus have a secret name? known only to himself. That, like, what's the point of that? Well, on the one hand, 
In ancient times, it was thought that if you knew someone's name, you could wield a certain level of power or control over them. Like think of even today, if you were to yell out to a friend, Jason! Got his attention. (laughs) You seize their attention just by saying their name. So in this sense today, it's the same, but in this sense, the secret name of Jesus is a way to say that he is under no one's control. He is available to us when we cry out to him. He is compassionate towards us, but he's not obligated or constrained by us in any way whatsoever. From another angle, though, having a secret name reveals something else about Jesus. It means that we don't nearly know him in his fullness. Some suggest, and I tend to agree with them, that this is a name that is hidden for now, but that will be revealed to everyone on that day. So it won't stay secret forever. It's a, title, it's a title reserved for eternity, which will reveal him to us in a way beyond our current finite ability to grasp. No matter how full our revelation of Jesus is now, there is still more to be revealed. No matter how much we know him now, there is far more to know. Isn't that great? Continue on. Verse 13 says, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And we really aren't sure whose blood his robe is dipped in. It's possible it's dipped in his own blood as a reminder of his own victorious death. It's possible it's dipped in the blood of the martyrs to show that he's coming to avenge them. And it's possible that it's dipped in the blood of his enemies. Also, someone else once had their robe dipped in blood. You know the story? Famous multicolored robe? Joseph. Back in Genesis, after Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave, they, they faked his death to their father by dipping his robe in goat's blood and then bringing that blood-stained robe to him. But those events, instead of crushing Joseph, that event set him on a course that the Lord used to bring him to a throne and save his people in Egypt. He would be vindicated and then some. Now as you think of Jesus as the true and better Joseph, Jesus was thought to be dead and gone as well. But once he was brought to his lowest He was raised all the way to a throne. And here he comes, vindicated and victorious, wearing a robe that shows how he's triumphed. No matter whose blood is on Jesus' robe here, it's it's a clear expression of his victory. Think about it. His robe, like his blood stained his clothes, but it didn't end him. Or his saint's blood is on his clothes and he will avenge them. Or his enemy's blood is there because he is about to defeat them once and for all. 
Isaiah 63 foresees the Lord coming as someone splendid in apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, and coincidentally, with garments spattered red with the blood of his foes. Whatever the case, I think this picture can remind us of all these truths and remind us that without the shedding of Christ's blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. If you personally been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, if not, what are you waiting for? It will be your only hope on this coming day. The blood of Christ. Verse 13 ends with another name for Jesus. It says, He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of of God. The Word of God. In John 1, which actually Miss Kendra read earlier, very great. John 1 says, this, this is the same John that wrote Revelation. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He's speaking of Jesus there, his divinity, his eternality, his creative power, his life giving power. But in Revelation 19 is actually the only place where he's given the full title. Not just the word, but the word of God. Now this doesn't mean he replaces scripture. It doesn't mean that he's literally speech of some kind. This means he is the authoritative word. He's the final word. Are you starting to get a, a sense of how glorious Jesus is as he returns, as he appears here? Now, will Jesus have literal fiery eyes, be riding a physical white horse, or be balancing multiple actual crowns on his head? I guess it's possible. I think it's highly unlikely, though. Remember the, that apocalyptic literature speaks in imagery and metaphors. It aims to engage our imaginations, to move our emotions. But a literal lamb who is a man, who is a word, who is a king, is nonsensical. At the same time, the imagery definitely represents literal realities, real things. So while his eyes may not actually contain real flames, he is perceptive and purifying. While he may or may not wear many crowns, he is a king to this grand extent. And while he may or may not be riding a, a majestic snorting horse, he will go to war. Speaking of war, there's something in this text not just to behold, but to beware. Beware Jesus coming victorious war against evil. Beware Jesus' coming victorious war against evil. Our believers can still behold this and actually rejoice that Jesus is going to win. But inasmuch as someone does not yet follow Jesus, this should serve as a warning. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, the white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
there was ever a perfectly just war, it's this one. It, it says Christ judges and makes war in righteousness. In righteousness. He is the righteous judge, which means he will always only do what is right. He would never march to war if it's not 100% called for. He would not judge anyone incorrectly or unfairly or unjustly. He won't cause any innocent civilian casualties along the way. Everything will be deserved. So be forewarned. Because if you deserve God's judgment, it's coming. By the way, we all deserve this is why we so desperately need Jesus. Adding to the majestic sight before him, John notices that Jesus is not alone. Verse 14. It says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Given that the Bible describes Jesus returning with both his mighty angels and with his saints, it's likely the armies at his back now include both angels and people. Probably include us. Now, I find it incredible that I need to say this today, but I do. In a world where someone discipled in a church can feel led to go shoot up a beauty spa, Just because we may be part of the Lord's army, yes, sir, does not mean we can attack enemies now or take justice into our own hands. God forbid. Vengeance is only the Lord's. Only he can judge and make war righteously. We're called to love our enemies, to pray for them until Jesus decides we can stop. Besides, this never says that we'll do any fighting. Maybe we will, but it doesn't say. The only weapon mentioned here is Jesus coming from his mouth. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Again, if you try to picture this literally, it's a rather grotesque image. As if his mouth is a sheath from which he pulls a sword. In chapters 1 and 2, we also saw Jesus have a double-edged sword in his mouth. This image actually comes directly from Isaiah 11, where it says that the Messiah shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. When it says that he's going to strike down the nations, it means to subdue them. But what comes out of mouths? Words. That's the idea. The sword is his words. In other words, Jesus' weapon of choice is his speech. And that's all he needs. And just as 
His words spoke the universe into existence. How his voice calmed the raging seas. He will bring the world to its knees merely by speaking. One little word shall fell them all. And then we return to an image that we saw earlier in Revelation of Jesus treading the winepress there. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. No people will not be literally stomped and squished like grapes. But it's clearly not a pretty picture. It's meant to shake us awake by the shoulders. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The holy wrath of God is fierce. It has a fury. Sin is not just making mistakes or errors. It is cosmic treason against a throne. And God's wrath will be satiated either on Christ's cross or at Christ's sword. Yes, Jesus loves us. Yes, Jesus is gentle and lowly. Yes, he's a a tender shepherd. But if we don't have a category for Jesus as a mighty warrior, we're missing something. Even shepherds carry a rod and a staff with which they can bludgeon a predator. Dane Ortland captures this balance well, saying, If we never come to Christ, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will his lamb-like tenderness for us, will, will be his lamb-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other, and give this to no one Will Jesus be neutral? If we object to Jesus establishing God's justice, really we object to the final solution to evil. We complain in this world all the time about the problem of evil. Problem of evil in this world, saying that it it casts doubt on God's power or his goodness or even his existence. But here, when God sends his son to finally and decisively deal with evil, then we cry foul. We can't have both ways. Good news is that we won't. The evil will be eliminated. Jesus' return is what gives us assurance that evil will be dealt with and suffering will cease. That's good news. In the final paragraph of this chapter, we see Jesus, the warrior, not only wage war, but win. Here's what we call the the final avenger in action. Look at verse 17 and on. Says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. We may think, surely Jesus won't come come down and just start killing people, will he? Yet the first time he came down, we killed him. And every one of our sins is what led him to die in the first place. So, it's not so bad when we do it. But if he enacts God's holy justice, then it's bad. We believe the wages of sin is death, right? You know, the wages of sin is death. We believe the tragic reality of hell. And yet, we can still cringe at passages like this, which at its most literal, describes death. We don't take God at his word that when this happens, it will be holy, righteous, and just. That's what he says. Yes, it can be hard to read, hard to hear. Yes, it sounds unbelievably tragic, but it's not nearly as tragic as us rebelling against God and thumbing our noses at his mercy. I won't dwell long on these gruesome verses, but I do need to point out a couple things. First, notice the clear supper invitation the angel gives the scavenger birds. Verse 17, it said, Come, gather for the great supper of God. And do you remember another dinner invitation recently? Back in verse 9, the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who, invited, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everyone, everyone is invited to one of two suppers. Everyone's destiny is a dinner. Right? The, the righteous will join in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Well, it says the wicked will become the great supper of God. There will be a feast for God's people and a feast on his enemies. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And we may go, that's the great supper of God. That's horrifying. Yes, it is. It's also imagery, and it's great, not in magnificence, but in magnitude. That list of people does not mean all people end up there facing God's wrath, but that all kinds of people end up there. 
on the last day, your social category, status, or rank will not save you. Your wealth, your fame, your power will not save you. Only being on the other side of the conflict under Jesus' banner will save you. Grant Osborne adds, How can a compassionate God do such a thing? And such a question forgets that Yahweh is at one and the same time a God of love and a holy God of justice. To ask the question is to ignore the devastating consequences of sin. We must remember the number of times in the book God has offered them forgiveness if they were to repent, yet they again and again refused God's offer and preferred to worship the very demons who hated them. They preferred the delusion to the truth. It is a holy God who must eradicate sin in order to inaugurate the perfect reality for which he had created humankind in the first place. Another thing to notice, verses 19 and 20 succinctly describe the battle of Armageddon. Chapter 16 told us that the nations of the world would gather for battle there. Chapter 17 said that God's enemies would, quote, make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. This is another account of the same event. But in none of the descriptions of Armageddon are we even told there's a battle. None of them. The battle seems to be over as soon as Jesus steps onto the scene. In all the, the biggest blockbuster movies of today, the, the battle scenes are usually the climax. Right? The, the fighting is drawn out, emphasized, even if the good guys win easily. Comparatively, Revelation is almost anticlimactic. Climactic. The, the battle is over. It barely gets mentioned. The bad guys assemble. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And then they promptly lose. And the beast was captured. With it, the false prophet. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Christ. It seems like Jesus' sword comes out and the battle's over, possibly instantaneously. If there's an actual battle, it doesn't even merit mention. Only the results are described. It emphasizes how utterly superior Jesus is to all other powers. Even this final battle of Armageddon is shaped by what Jesus has already done in the gospel. How so? Well, Daryl Johnson explains, the final battle was the cross, when Jesus triumphed over the principalities and powers. The final battle, small case letters, need not be fought because the final battle, capital letters, has already been fought and won. Jesus Christ rides simply to finally implement the victory of the cross. And so, if you have not knelt before the cross of Christ before, receiving his mercy there, be forewarned today that Jesus is going to be fully victorious over all evil one day. And if there is evil inside of you, like there is in me, we need his pardon before then. We need his mercy. Behold, 
Jesus' coming glorious return to earth. Beware his coming victorious war on evil. You may have noticed that I rushed over a couple verses earlier, even skipping one entirely. That's because I think there's one final big idea that's interspersed throughout, and I thought it best to emphasize this one last. It comes primarily from verse 16, which I think is the central verse of this entire passage. It says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That one verse summarizes both Jesus' identity and his actions here. He is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and he's coming to rule. What that means for us is that we should bow before Jesus, the coming king over all. We need to submit our lives to Jesus now, bowing before him, the coming king over all. We see this theme come through in verse 12, where it says, On his head are many diadems, like multiple crowns means he rules over multiple realms. But this is also meant to contrast Satan's and the beast's counterfeit reigns that we saw earlier in Revelation. Right? When we saw the, the dragon representing Satan, he's wearing seven crowns. And then his beast rose up, sporting ten of them. And they need like seven or ten heads to wear all these crowns. Jesus' crowns, on the other hand, aren't even counted. They are many, and they all rest on just one head. So crown him with many crowns. Crown him the Lord of heaven, one with the Father known, one with the Spirit through him given from yonder glorious throne. To thee be endless praise, for thou for us hast died. Be thou, O Lord, through endless days adored and magnified. I've noticed a bad habit some of us Christians have these days. We tend to freak out over the behavior of certain politicians or rulers. We worry, we rant, we fret, we complain, we protest, we blame as if they were our true rulers and as if they could truly control our lives. The amount of airtime they take up in our minds is telling and alarming. And God has put them in place to govern us, yes, but they are not our true king. I think we should be more characterized as people who are unshaken by the powers that be. We know they'll pass while our king is on a throne right now. And one day he will return with all the crowns. We also notice the theme of Jesus as the coming king in verse 15 where it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That rod of iron could also be translated as an iron scepter. 
and it actually likely refers to the shepherd's club that fends off predators, which fits here as the word rule in verse 15 could also be translated as shepherd. A good king will act like a shepherd, guarding and protecting and caring for his people. Now, this is a picture taken from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, a fitting source for all of this. As Psalm 2 is a song written about kings plotting against God and how silly that is to the one seated on the throne above all their thrones. Just listen to these words. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. Speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. With some clear prophetic allusions to Jesus, it continues, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And Psalm 2 concludes, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That could just as easily be the application for us today from Revelation 19. Kings, rulers of this world, be wise and be warned. There is one above you. All of us serve the Lord appropriate fear. Rejoice and tremble. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to Him. Submit your lives to Him. And take refuge in Christ. For truly blessed are all who take refuge in Him. On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of of lords being written there it likely just means it was written on his robe over his thigh the place near where a sword would usually rest and thus would be very conspicuous on a warrior he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords this is the inevitable outcome for jesus christ like like chapter 17 told us he conquers simply because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. But this is also another proof of his divinity. Those are titles in Scripture reserved for God alone. There can only be one king over all other kings. Only one Lord of lords. This warrior Christ is God himself coming to save his people. 
He, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, this sounds powerful to us now, but it would have even been more powerful, even provocative in John's day. Because whenever Caesar entered the Roman Senate, these words were shouted out, You, but you, Caesar, are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the one in heaven snickers. <laughs> nope. I've sent my king on Zion. I've established my king's reign. As Daryl Johnson concludes, every king has a king. Jesus is king above all kings, governor above all governors. Every lord has a lord. Jesus is lord above all lords. Kings and queens, lords and ladies, presidents and premiers and prime ministers, and governors and mayors may not realize it or acknowledge it, but that does not change reality. The only issue is whether or not we will face reality and surrender to him. That is the question I want to leave you with. Have you faced reality and surrendered to him? Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? And if you have, does your life and actions reflect that? Is there anything, any area of life that you have not surrendered to him? Who rules over your priorities? Your calendar, your finances, your emotions, your family life, your online life? Who's king? And if there is something, like, is there something that you know your king wants you to do today? Will you obey? Jesus is coming back. Gloriously, victoriously, royally. Are you ready for his reign? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Heavenly Father, please do a work in our hearts today. Help us to surrender all we have and all we are to you, for you are our King. You are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords, and we look forward so much to seeing you in glory like this one day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.